Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The report we make is that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the president and the vice president. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> it's one of the great days in American history. To restore the soul and secure the future of America requires so much more than words. Hello, and welcome to Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series from the New Statesman's World Review that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We will be judged, you and I, by how we resolve these cascading crises of our era. He promised a new era, a chance for America to heal, not only from the pandemic, but from four years of Donald Trump and the divisions he stoked. We will rise to the occasion is the question. Will we master this rare and difficult hour? Will we meet our obligations and pass along a new and better world to our children? I believe we must. I'm sure you do as well. I believe we will. I'm your host, Emily Tampkin. And with a range of expert guests, we examine whether three pillars of Biden's campaign promises foreign policy, immigration, and voting rights have held up. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. In our final episode, we examine voting rights under Biden, one year on. In the weeks that followed Joe Biden's election, Donald Trump refused to concede. He falsely claimed that the election was stolen. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. This was not true. But Trump's accusations have had real-world consequences. On the day that the election was meant to be certified, Trump supporters mobbed the Capitol building. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you, to the Capitol. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. USA! 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 message to the Capitol Hill police and the lawmakers here. This is our country. This is our house. Since the attack... 
Trump's accusations of voter fraud have sparked a Republican movement to restrict voting access. Lawmakers in at least 19 states passed over 30 laws between January and the beginning of December last year. These restrictions don't affect everybody equally. In practice, they predominantly impact new voters, younger voters, and Black voters. This is to say nothing of the intimidation of election officials or even of the continuation of more traditional methods like gerrymandering, the manipulation of electoral boundaries to support a political party. The big lie is just that, a big lie. Biden gave an impassioned defense of the right to vote in July last year after activists questioned how seriously the White House was taking the issue. Biden denounced an assault on democracy. They want to make it so hard and convenient that they hope people don't vote at all. That's what this is about. 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. We're going to challenge it vigorously. But with no word on ending the filibuster, America's past is haunting its present, and the future of new voting laws remains uncertain. The question of who counts still haunts the Republic, and it is one upon which its future rests. I am joined now by Dr. Keisha Blaine, Associate Professor of History at the University of Pittsburgh, and Brandon Tensley, a national political writer at CNN, where he helms the newsletter Race Deconstructed. Brandon, Dr. Blaine, thank you both so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. So to start out, we're now a year into Biden's presidency. This episode will be live a a day before the anniversary of Biden's inauguration. Obviously, that inauguration took place amidst great uproar because President Donald Trump cast serious doubt on the legitimacy of the 2020 election and on the votes that were cast in that election. However, this is not just about Donald Trump, and it is not just about Trump lying about the 2020 presidential election. Dr. Blaine, I was hoping that you could put Trump in the present political context, or if you like, in the broader American historical context to sort of ground this moment. And and then we can talk a bit about what makes it unique and what makes it not so unique. Well, when I think about the Trump presidency, immediately the word that comes to mind for me um, is backlash. Uh, And and I think about Mm -hmm. the fact that as a nation, uh, we celebrated the election um, of Barack Obama. And I think about what it meant to have a black president of the United States, certainly important symbolically, but even uh, fundamentally important in terms of what he was able to accomplish. And obviously every president can be critiqued and I'm not suggesting that President Obama uh, was a perfect president, but I think On the heels of Barack Obama's presidency, uh, it's somewhat not surprising, especially if you look at the patterns of U.S. history, that someone like Donald Trump was able to rise to leadership despite everything we already knew about him, uh, even when it came to matters of race and uh, his, his very clear views. There were no surprises, but I think there were so many people angry, frustrated, Uh, with the fact that we did, in fact, have um, a Black president that they were pretty much willing to support and to stand behind just about anyone. Uh, And I think in the case of Donald Trump, he knew how to appeal, um, in my opinion, to uh, really the the worst parts of individuals. and, And he knew how to speak in a way that would actually 
pull people to his side who had concerns about the progress that marginalized groups were making in the United States. So that's the way that I would describe Trump's presidency. And then, as we know, he ultimately advocated a number of policies that stripped away at the rights of so many marginalized groups and particularly Black and brown people. You mentioned patterns of history, and I do want to get back to that. But Brandon, first, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've written about how the the attack on the legitimacy of the 2020 election was at its core, an attack on the legitimacy of Black votes and Black voters. And I wanted to ask you to expand on that and to perhaps explain it to listeners who haven't heard it before. Yeah. So, you know, I think even from, you know, my own research and reporting, uh, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind, uh, not just in the context of the January 6th insurrection, but also in the broader context that Dr. Blaine was just talking about in terms of the Trump presidency, is how Trump uh, wasn't just saying that some votes were illegitimate, but he was making these false claims about uh, votes in particular from cities that are heavily Black, predominantly Black, and how this fits into this broader history of democracy is something that is okay for some people, but not for other people. And in this case, this uh, very much goes to this longer sort of historical through line of attempts to narrow the franchise for Black Americans. Um, You know, you can go all the way back to following the Civil War during Reconstruction. This was a groundbreaking time uh, when Black Americans uh, finally had access to rights that they did not have before, and how this also preempted uh, this period of backlash that Dr. Blaine uh, was talking about uh, in the form of these Redeemer governments in the former Confederate states during the mid-century civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century. uh, You also had these different sort of pushes to curtail Black voting rights, but also this was a time when you had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so when I think about the January 6th insurrection, when I think about this broader attack on democracy, I don't think of it just in terms of a general attack on democracy, but I think it is more specifically aimed at multiracial democracy. People increasingly are are putting this in the context of how multiracial democracy in the U.S. is a very young thing, right? Um, It was not really achieved until the Voting Rights Act uh, was passed in 1965. Um, And so it's a very fragile democracy. And I think this uh, sort of goes to the core of what Donald Trump was doing uh, when he was making these exhortations for people to stop the steal um, and things like that. Before we delve more deeply into what's happening in the present and what might happen in the very near future, Dr. Blaine, I did want to give you a chance to talk about some of these patterns of history to what you were referring in the specific moments where maybe we've seen this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Brandon is absolutely correct to evoke the Reconstruction era and, and also the era of the civil rights movement. You know, as he was talking, I was thinking about some of the discussions around voting in particular. Uh, So if you look at a place like Mississippi in in the early 1960s, so before the passage of the Voting Rights Act, only an estimated 5% of uh, Black residents in the state were registered to vote. And of course, activists on the ground, they were pointing out that the reason this this is happening is because people are being blocked from the ballot box. They are facing 
violence. They're facing all these extra legal strategies, um, as well as legal strategies, because there are all of these policies in place that made it difficult for Black people to vote, even though they should have been able to vote as citizens of the United States. Uh, And the counter argument was always, well, Black people aren't interested in voting. The reason why the numbers are low is they're not interested in voting. Uh, And so no one would actually take full ownership uh, of the fact that people are being blocked. And here we are at a moment where we're having similar kinds of conversations. We are pointing out that people will, in fact, uh, vote uh, and what blocks people, right, isn't interest, right? It's not, a, it's not about a lack of interest in electoral politics. It's a matter of access. And when you pass policies at the statewide level that ultimately make it difficult for someone to be able to cast a ballot, uh, then uh, you can't then turn around and say, oh, look, you know, this is nothing, th- there is no correlation. It's obvious that there is a correlation. And, and I think it's somewhat surprising that we are still at a moment where we're having similar kinds of debates about voting rights, despite the fact that in 1965, as we know, the Voting Rights Act was passed and fundamentally opened up, you know, the floodgates in terms of access for Black people. But since its passage, it has been under attack. And now we're at a moment, you know, we've celebrated um, the Voting Rights Act, and, and yet we're watching year after year, all of these rights um, just really being stripped away with, with each new statewide policy. So so I think that you, you can see the parallels historically uh, to this current moment. And, and it is frustrating that we are at a moment where we're walking backwards instead of moving forward. For listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar, um, so the, the Voting Rights Act, to which both um, Brandon and Dr. Blaine have referred, was in, in a certain sense gutted in 2013 by the U.S. Supreme Court, which said, oh, actually, this isn't a problem anymore. And so therefore, states can just pass these voting laws and they don't need to clear it at the federal level anymore. Now, what I think is so interesting is that if this were just an isolated incident, right, if it were just Trump, if it were just one man who wanted to cling to power and therefore cast dispersions on American democracy everybody else would have turned around and said, no, we're going to protect the right to vote. But instead, what we've seen over the past year is a host of laws at the state level that will make it more difficult for people, particularly Black Americans, but not only Black Americans, to vote. Now, the Biden administration comes into office and says, you know, that was the big lie that Trump told. He is trying to destroy American democracy, and we are going to protect the right to vote. Brandon, do you think that he has acted with urgency on that? Yeah, that is the uh, big question, I think, uh, that a lot of people have today. And, you know, I think that in light of the response by uh, a lot of racial justice groups over the past couple of weeks, Biden just gave this really big speech in Atlanta talking about this assault on voting rights. But I think a lot of people, in particular, a lot of activists, but also just a lot of ordinary Black citizens are frustrated with the the lack of urgency the administration has sort of put into fighting for voting rights. Specifically, a lot of people are making the comparison that the Biden administration hasn't been as urgent um, or hasn't approached the issue with the same sort of urgency as the administration has approached, for instance, the infrastructure bill, Biden's uh, Build Back Better work. It's one of those things where I think a lot of people have this sense, and by people in this case, I'm talking specifically about uh, Black Americans, sort of the sentiment that you hear is that, you know, Black people, 
essentially just get empty promises. This is particularly galling, I think, in the context of the enormous faith um, and effort and work that organizers and Black voters have put into put behind the Democratic Party, not only in 2020, but also in 2021. And, you know, one thing that I was thinking of as Dr. Blaine was talking was she mentioned how the sort of attacks that we're seeing um, on democracy, on multiracial democracy, um, it's not um, the result of a lack of eagerness or excitement or enthusiasm about voting, but it's about these very real sort of attacks on people's access to the franchise. Uh, And so I think that's another part of this sort of frustration that a lot of people feel is, you know, just telling people like, get out and vote, we have to vote, you know, like our democracy at stake, uh, very much sort of minimizes uh, not only the work that a lot of people um, have been putting into uh, turning out um, in large numbers, including during a pandemic, but it also sort of minimizes the actual stakes uh, of the crisis that we're in. You know, it's not like a democracy is at stake, uh, but it very much is being eroded and it is at stake. And so I think uh, what a lot of people are feeling is that the administration, they're wondering if it's, if it's almost too late. Is the Biden administration coming to this battle later rather than sooner? And what are going to be the consequences of these sort of belated actions? Right. So you were referring to the January 11th speech in Atlanta of this year in which Biden said that perhaps the Senate should consider abolishing the filibuster in order to pass voting rights at a national level. Two interesting things about that that I want to flag. One, he did this a year in. And two, the response from conservatives, including, for example, conservatives who admonished Trump for what he did last year, like Senator Mitt Romney was quite negative. You have Romney saying that Biden is doing um, something similar to Trump and casting doubt on the legitimacy of the American electoral system, as though questioning election results and protecting people's right to participate in that election are the same. Um, Dr. Blaine, I'd like to get your opinion on why the Biden administration waited a year to make a speech like this, because in between we've had reports that the administration said things to voting rights groups like, well, you'll just have to out-organize the voting restrictions. Why wait a year to tell people, well, maybe consider getting rid of the filibuster? I'm not entirely sure, especially because these conversations were already taking place on the ground uh, for such a long time. In fact, I was just reflecting on the fact that uh, in March of last year, Mitch McConnell had made a remark about the filibuster not having a racial history. And of course, everyone immediately responded to highlight the fact that it is very much tied to a racist history and uh, show just countless examples historically where the filibuster was used to block all kinds of of legislation, you know, for anti-lynching as an example, or even in the context of the 60s for blocking civil rights uh, legislation. And those conversations were taking place nationally. Uh, So this is certainly not a new topic. And I, I suspect that Biden figured that he could somehow negotiate, that he could somehow work things out uh, behind the scenes. I, that's what I imagine. And clearly that hasn't worked. So the speech on the 11th really was, uh, in my view, a, 
a desperate speech. I mean, it just, it, it was clear that this was a desperate moment. Everything else had failed. So, so now we'll actually try to be forceful. But quite frankly, it's a bit too late. And it's unfortunate, you know, because when you think about politics, and this is true, I think, certainly in the U.S. context, but I think it's true globally, particularly when we're discussing democracies, I, I always marvel at the fact that it takes political leaders sometimes um, such a long time for, for them to align themselves with, with what people are demanding. And, you know, if you if you pay attention to what activists have been saying for quite some time, then we know that Biden should have been more forceful a long time ago. And so many activists have been telling him to give that kind of speech. And he just didn't do it. And so now he's making the speech. Well, that's exactly why so many civil rights groups didn't bother to show up uh, to extend their support, because they know that they have been making this demand for a long time and no one was listening. So why show up now uh, at the 11th hour and and stand with him? So I, I just I think it's unfortunate that we've gotten to this moment and I have no idea why he thought it was strategic to not speak up um, and be a lot more forceful sooner. Right, particularly because one hopes that universal enfranchisement and civic efficacy is considered a good by every politician. But since it's obviously not, it's in Biden and the Democrats' own interest to protect the right of many of their voters to get to the polls. Like You would hope that the idea that we want to continue to live in a democracy is enough. But failing that, like, don't you want to stay in office to do your job and to fulfill your promises, one of which, by the way, was protecting voting rights? So that was the past year and the past week. We're now at the start of year two. My last question for both of you is, it's a double question, I'm going to cheat. What do you want to see from the Biden administration with respect to voting rights, with respect to protections for multiracial democracy in the coming year? And what do you think we will see? Brandon, I'll, I'll go to you first. Yeah, that's a good, uh, great question. And so I think, you know, as passionate and fiery as Biden's speech in Atlanta was, one thing I think was lacking was specificity, specifically specificity in regard to who is obstructing actually passing uh, some of the legislation or uh, avenues for passing some of the key voting rights legislation. In particular, I honestly think that it would have been more strategic and it would have applied more pressure if he had named names, if he had said specifically that it was Senators uh, Cinema and Manchin who are the holdouts when it comes to uh, actually wanting to eliminate or even reform the filibuster, carve out a, um, an exception to be able to pass voting rights legislation. Um, so I felt that that was somewhat of a missed opportunity. Um, and so I do wonder in the sort of coming weeks, and I'm almost afraid to even talk in terms of months because I think that I don't, I don't even know if we have that much time, but I do wonder if in the coming weeks, um, will there be more specific pressure applied from the Biden administration to Senator Cinema and Manchin uh, when it comes to moving forward with uh, voting rights legislation um, or if, you know, being willing to, to work on finding a path forward. So I think for me, that's maybe the thing that um, I'm sort of hoping that we'll see uh, come from the Biden administration. So that's what you're hoping we'll see. What in reality do you think we will see? Oof, in reality, I don't know. I, you know, maybe this is me being somewhat of a cynic. Uh, sometimes I do wonder, one, if it's too late, um, and two, 
even if it's not too late, will there be this sort of idealism that, you know, we will be able to reach across the aisle and find uh, some Republican senators who are willing to back this and will be so deceived by that naivete that then it will actually become too late. So that's me sort of leaning into uh, full-blown cynicism. And I, I don't know, I'm... I'm hoping for the best and also not expecting too much. And Dr. Blaine? I agree with Brandon. um, And I try to remain optimistic as much as possible. But I I just think the developments of the last year suggest that very little will happen uh, as we move forward. I think I certainly would like to see the John Lewis Voting Rights Act move forward, but you know, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to to figure out that it's likely not going to happen. And I think what should have happened, and, and perhaps this is a lesson for the Biden administration moving forward, is that he needs to to really listen more, quite frankly, to the people who elected him. Uh, I, I'm always struck by the fact that so many people galvanize, they come together. And they make it possible to elect officials, and then those officials get into office and then turn around and critique the very same people who made it possible for them to be there. It's time to listen, and it's time to not be dismissive. Uh, and I think he has been dismissive until this moment, and, and I think it's it's now too late. So perhaps this is a, a broader lesson that, that it will help guide him moving forward uh, into the next three years. With that call to the Biden administration, Brandon Tensley of CNN, Dr. Keisha Blaine of the University of Pittsburgh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Emily. Coming up. We are seeing that in states, regardless where uh, former President Trump actually won, in states completely controlled by Republican lawmakers, there is still an undermining of confidence in the election. I'll be speaking with Sylvia Albert, Director of Voting and Elections at Common Cause, on the anti-democratic trends she's tracked over the past year and what can be done to reverse them. Subscribing to the New Statesman helps us keep making podcasts like this one. You can get 12 weeks for just one pound a week. You'll get access to all our reporting and analysis on global affairs, as well as in-depth coverage of US politics in the magazine and online at newstatesman.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm joined now by Sylvia Albert. She is the Director of Voting and Elections at Common Cause, which is an organization that fights to uphold an accountable government um, and for equal rights and opportunities and representation. Sylvia, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So you look at voting rights and what is being done to protect and preserve, um, but also to undermine and erode them. What are some of the most concerning trends that we've seen over the past year? Well, I think something that we want to highlight and laud is the huge increase in turnout in the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. Across the country, elections officials were quick on their feet. They made changes as necessary. And in the midst of a pandemic, we had this unbelievable record turnout. And then immediately after that, we started seeing these bills passing in state houses around the country, which were essentially saying to voters, actually, never mind, we didn't want you to vote. It's just a really startling approach in a democracy, right? We know that politicians will do whatever they need to do to stay in power, um, but you don't generally think that they will try to not have a democracy anymore in order to stay in power. Yes, that is to say that that is concerning is, uh, is an understatement. Can you elaborate on the ways in which the laws say, we don't want you to vote? Part of the reason we had record turnout was because of the flexibility. Our voting system should meet the voter where they are, which means allowing absentee voting, means allowing voting in person if you'd like, or early voting. Um, So different avenues for voters. And what we've seen this year is a swath of bills to limit that. So limiting or eliminating early voting, removing absentee voting or getting rid of drop boxes where somebody would return their absentee ballot, Um, making it so that it is harder to vote instead of easier. And then the second part of that is actually undermining the authority of elections officials themselves to run the election. So Let's say you've determined that um, you don't want absentee ballots, but now we have legislation that is giving partisan officials the power to take control of elections away from local election officials. There has been some legislation floated that would actually allow the state house to send whichever delegates they wanted to the 
electoral college. That thankfully hasn't passed, but all the other pieces are sort of lining up in that direction. There are some who say that this is necessary to restore confidence in Americans' elections after the 2020 election, and look how many people don't really think that Biden is the president, and so therefore we need to clean up our our electoral system. Can you tell our listeners a a bit about what is flawed with that argument? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first and foremost is that you yourself are the individual undermining the election. So these elected officials are saying to the American public, don't trust this election. And then they are saying, let me pass this bill to restore your trust in the election, right? Right. So first of all, they created the problem. Um, And second of all, what we are seeing is that doesn't fix the issue. We are seeing that in states, regardless where uh, former President Trump actually won, in states completely controlled by Republican lawmakers, there is still an undermining of confidence in the election. So those two things don't seem to to go together. Texas is well known for having extremely restrictive voting laws. Its turnout is at 50% because of that. It is exceptionally difficult to vote in Texas, and there is still not voter confidence in Texas. And it is a result of the posturing of the Republican Party right now. Biden was very clear that Trump was trying to undermine the election, has repeatedly called Trump's claim that this was a stolen election, the big lie, promised on the campaign trail to ensure that voting rights were protected. And yet what we have seen in practice is that because of the filibuster and because of the insistence on the part of some more moderate Democrats that voting rights be achieved in a bipartisan fashion, that actually very little has been done at the federal level to protect the right to vote. Are you optimistic that that will change in year two? Or do you think that we're in for for more of the same, which is talking about, oh, we need to vote like our democracy depends on it, but not actually legislating like our democracy depends on it? I still have faith that the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act can get done this year. I think what's happening on the Hill is sort of normal Hill legislative posturing. Um, I appreciate the fact that this year, President Biden, or the last few months, President Biden has used his bully pulpit to really push for election reform. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, he is one man. And while, yes, he's the most powerful man in America, he cannot actually unilaterally change how Congress works. We spoke about voting rights and we spoke about making it more difficult for election officials to do their jobs. Are there other trends that you think perhaps get less attention, but of which people should be aware when assessing the state of American democracy? Well, I think, as you pointed out, the faith by the electorate is key. But I think really the scary trend that we are seeing is the candidates themselves undermining the election if they lose. Yes. Right. Part of a stable democracy is when you lose an election, you concede and say, I lost the election. And we're not seeing that. Basically, all of the candidates who are losing elections are immediately screaming that there was a problem when there wasn't any. Um, And that is just a huge problem and a huge undermining of our democratic principles. This is a podcast on the battle for the soul of America. And so uh, I will end on a cliched note, which is searching for American optimism. Uh, You already said that you think that there's reason to hope that perhaps legislation will be enacted at the federal level this year. Are there other 
trends that are pointing in, if not a more positive direction, then at least a direction that could be turned from negative to positive in the voting rights and democracy space? I think the awareness of voting rights has Mm -hmm. really grown exponentially in the last few years. Um, When you talk about gerrymandering, I think if you looked at the last redistricting cycle in 2010 and asked people what gerrymandering was, a huge percentage of the population would have no idea what you're talking about. Right. But now people know the word, they understand the policies that are being undertaken to undermine their right to vote. And I think that is a huge positive because the first step to activating the people to taking action in support of their democracy is making them understand when it's under attack. We'll leave it there. Sylvia Albert, thank you again so much for for being with me today. Thank you. You can listen to this complete series, including part one on foreign policy and part two on immigration by clicking the link in the show notes. Remember to like, subscribe, and tell a friend. I've been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Mae Robson. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.